One of the last things that the much-loved American pastor and author Tim Keller wrote before he died in May of this year was an article called uh, Lemonade on the Porch about the gospel in a post-Christendom society. Uh, And this article offers what I think is a quite helpful image for how we might think of the relationship between the church and the wider culture. Uh, The article starts like this. Keller writes, In the summer of 1973, my wife Kathy worked for a church in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia when the crime rate in urban areas was far higher than it is today. There she came to see the importance of porches. She was young, 23 years old, and the only white girl living in the neighborhood. But many of the leading matrons of the community monitored the world from their porches. They would call to her as she walked down the street, you're safe on this block, honey, we've got our eyes on you. Keller explains that porches, verandas, were crucial halfway places between the insides of the homes and the street. He says, blocks in which no one sat out on porches to talk to passers-by and to watch what was happening were desolate and often dangerous. Blocks with lots of porch sitters were friendly. If you were on a porch and saw someone you knew, you could call them up onto the steps of the porch and talk and even offer them a glass of lemonade or sweet tea on a hot day before they went on their way. Porches were the key to a vibrant neighbourhood. Keller notes that for around a 1,000 years... Most people in the Western world spent a lot of time on what we might call the church porch. Only some people at any given time would be committed Christians, but there was a lot of common ground between the house, the church, and the street, the culture. Uh, People would have a generally favourable opinion of Christianity. Uh, Their moral compass was largely shaped by Christian ethics. There was easy access between the two spaces. Of course, over the last couple of hundred years, and especially over the last few decades, the church porch has all but vanished. That in-between space, which makes it easy and natural for people to come into the church off the street, no longer exists. And Keller's argument is that Christians in the West should therefore learn to create their own porches, where, he says, people can enter a relational process and be prepared to hear and understand and perhaps embrace the gospel. Some examples that he gives of this church, uh, this porch building are things like service in the community, caring for the poor, um, art, you know, literature, music, theatre, also education, Christian schools, places where Christians can contribute to the common good and invite people to participate in a community where they're welcomed, where they're offered lemonade, if they're thirsty, where they're given the opportunity to question faith and perhaps taste and see that the Lord is good. If we're interested in porch building, there are quite a few Bible passages that we could go to to help us understand and undertake that task. We could look at Jeremiah 29, which is a letter that the prophet Jeremiah writes uh, to God's people, the Israelites, who are in exile in corrupt, brutal Babylon, explaining to them that God wants them to build houses and settle down and plant gardens to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city that he's called them to. We could look at uh, Acts 17, 
which is the Apostle Paul's speech at the Areopagus, engaging the Athenians on their own terms with this strange news of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Plenty of other places, but I wanted this morning to share with you what I consider my own go-to public Christianity Bible passage. Um, It also happens to be probably my favorite chapter of the whole Bible, Isaiah 55. Uh, I want to draw out three pieces of wisdom about porch building that I think Isaiah 55 has for us. I'm going to draw on some other things too, but I want to anchor each idea in this rich chapter. Uh, These are three things that it will help a lot to keep sight of as we look around us at kind of the mess and chaos of our times, um, of any time really. Three things that it's often going to be difficult to keep sight of. The first thing is that people are parched, that like us, what everyone around us is longing for is living water. The second is that God calls us to a radically counterintuitive and countercultural way of relating to a parched world, a way of grace. And the third is that in spite of everything, in spite of the church's bad publicity, often deserved, in spite of our own doubts and failures, we know where living water is to be found. And by pointing people to it, we're pointing them to the only source of true satisfaction. So first, let's talk about thirst a little, spiritual thirst. There are a couple of um, pieces of common wisdom in our time uh, about spirituality that these days are looking increasingly dubious. One is that materialism is the default for Australians and for other Westerners, that the rise in no religion, which was 39% of people at the last uh, census, equates neatly to a rise in people who are what we might call this-worldly, Um, who believe that what you see is what you get, who disbelieve in anything transcendent. Uh, The second piece of common wisdom is that this materialism is more pronounced in younger generations, that lower rates of traditional religiosity among teenagers and 20-somethings is the same thing as lower rates of belief in God's spiritual realities, belief in something more. Uh, A little bit of data here before we turn back to Isaiah. Uh, First, let's have a a quick chat about the nuns, um, so-called, the no-religion box tickers. Here's some figures from the US. Uh, This is from a 2018 Pew Research Center survey, which found that fully 72% of American nuns believe in God or a higher power. 46% say that they talk to God regularly. 13% say he talks back. 41% say this higher power has rewarded them and 28% that it's punished them. 40% say they experience a sense of spiritual peace and well-being at least once a week. This worldly is not really a term that we would apply to these nuns. Beneath the surface of all those kind of losing our religion headlines, the no religion category is really interesting. Uh, There are a lot of Aussie stats in particular that I could share with you as well, but this is just a glimpse um, of young Australians and what they believe. This comes from a 2019 survey called Australia's Generation Z Study, which was conducted by ANU and Deakin and Monash. Um, I don't know how easy that is for you to read. 
but the options are belief in God, belief in a higher being, no belief in God or higher being, and don't know or unsure. Um, this study found that 52% of teens don't identify with religions. So that's significantly higher than 39% of the population in general. However, only 24% of them were willing to say, no, I don't believe in God or a higher power. Now, surveys show that young people can be pretty vague on what they do believe or they believe either sincerely or semi-ironically in things like astrology or witchcraft or manifestation. Um, 50% say they definitely believe in karma, uh, 31% in ghosts, but firmly materialist, these kids ain't. Surveys are consistently suggesting that this generation is open to and interested in the supernatural. So what does Isaiah 55 have to say to the nuns and to all of us? The chapter opens, of course, with a few absolutely golden verses, this plea from the creator of every nebula and every blade of grass to the human creatures that he's made. Come. The NRSV has it beginning, ho, which kind of threw me a bit. Um, It's kind of, yo, all you who are thirsty. Um, But essentially it's come. Everyone who thirsts, it's a plea, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. When I turn from the census data, for example, when I turn from the various crises and messes of our time, the loneliness epidemic, a mental health crisis, uh, clashes over politics and sexuality and gender and race and life and death, uh, when I turn from everything going on around us to Isaiah 55, what it helps me to tune into underneath all of the noise is thirst, how thirsty people are, how thirsty we all are, not in the Gen Z sense of thirsty, if you know that slang, the traditional sense of thirsty, how all the sad and desperate and sometimes terrible things that we see happening around us, and for that matter, all the good and hopeful and positive things as well, speak even shout of people's yearnings and fears and deep need, of their restlessness for more, for their creator, for the water and the wine and the milk and the bread that only he can provide. I find it quite helpful, actually, to uh, set this lens over pretty much every cultural trend that we see. Instead of looking at the way that society is going and seeing threat to uh, our own security or to the things that we believe or value, seeing thirst instead, thirst rather than threat. People, and especially young people, may be disillusioned with the church. They may be wary of institutions in general, but they generally do seem to think that there's more to life. They're on a quest of some kind, whether or not they would articulate it this way, for fullness. As are you, and as am I, come to me, all you who are thirsty. One of the things that I think seeing our neighbours and our culture through this lens of thirst helps us to do is it puts us all on the same playing field, on the same 
journey, to use a much laboured term, um, it seems to me that the more that we see ourselves and those we seek to serve, both inside and outside the church, as fellow seekers, fellow desirers, yearners, the more that we conceive even of those who might be hostile or suspicious towards Christians as the thirsty humans that God is beckoning to alongside us in, uh, in Isaiah 55, the more that we appreciate that actually we all eat and drink for free here and that all of us keep doing our industrious best to drink from broken cisterns when, when springs of living water are offered to us, In sum, the more that we see ourselves as on a shared quest for fullness and freedom and forgiveness with those around us, the more calm and hopeful we'll be about the crises of our culture. And I suspect the more inviting we'll be as well to those who are presently drinking from other wells. So in a tumultuous time, in a culture that is sometimes dismissive or suspicious of Christians, Isaiah 55 encourages us to look at the world and the people around us through a lens of thirst. How are we to respond to the thirsty? Isaiah is very clear how God responds to the thirsty, right, to the hungry. He offers them water, wine, milk, without cost, the richest of food, satisfaction. Verse 7 urges all people to return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Um, The verses that follow there, verse 8 and 9, which are often quoted, aren't they? Um, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Those verses are often quoted to remind us that, you know, we can't always understand what God is doing, um, that he and his plans are bigger than we can comprehend. But the context of verses 6 and 7 suggest a particular way that our ways are not not God's ways. It's his mercy, his grace, that he will abundantly pardon us. He will flood our lives with his grace when in our selfishness and our faithlessness we have deserved only judgment. This is not naturally how we treat one another, is it? How we respond to the wrongs of other people. His ways are higher than our ways. There's a concept that psychologists call complementary and non-complementary behavior. This is complementary with an E, kind of matching, corresponding, not complementary as in saying nice things. Um, I first heard about this concept on a podcast called Invisibilia. And what it refers to is how people mostly respond to each other in what we might call complementary ways. If you're warm towards me, then I'll be warm back to you. If you're angry or hostile, I'm likely to get hostile in response. Non-complementary behavior, so meeting anger or hatred with love, with warmth, that's incredibly difficult to do, but it's also incredibly powerful. Uh, The podcast episode that I listened to on this was called Flip the Script, and it opened with an apparently true story about a backyard dinner party where a group of friends are celebrating together. It's this lovely evening, good food, good wine, great conversation. And onto this cheerful scene appears a man with a gun who demands that they give him their money or he's going to start shooting. 
The problem is nobody has any cash on them, so they start kind of trying to reason with him, trying to guilt or shame him into leaving, and the tension escalates until one of them says to him, look, we're celebrating here. Why don't you sit down and have a glass of wine with us? And so the man sits down, he has a sip of wine, it's good wine, he eats some cheese. After a little while, he mumbles to himself, I think I've come to the wrong place. When he gets up to leave, he asks for a group hug. This is what non-complementary behaviour can do. Disarm, defuse a situation, flip the script, break the cycle. I don't know if you've ever been in or been witness to an argument on social media, say, uh, where someone suddenly says something like, yeah, I see your point, or, oh, I didn't know that. Tell me more about that. I feel like that happens rarely enough that it kind of sticks out. Um, That's not really the mode that we mostly conduct, especially social media arguments in, but it instantly changes the temperature. It opens up new possibilities. When you think about it, ours is, in fact, a non-complementary gospel. We rejected God, and instead of rejecting us right back, He sends his only son that we might live. God acts in grace towards those who are his enemies. And while Isaiah acknowledges that acting this way does not come naturally to us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, the New Testament is very clear that we are to strive to be like God in this. Love your enemies, says Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Romans, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 1 Peter, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. And the chapter before that as well, 1 Peter 2, the second passage that was read for us, Christ suffered for doing good, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, not retaliating and making threats when insulted, when attacked. Uh, here's one quite vivid illustration of what this non-complementary approach might look like. The story of um, a guy called Daryl Davis. You may have heard of Davis is an African-American blues musician who's also a Christian and who has for the last 30 years made a hobby of befriending Ku Klux Klan members. He has, according to him, accidentally persuaded perhaps 200 of them to abandon the Klan. He's reported to have a wardrobe full of um, Klan robes that these men have handed over to him as they've quit. Davis says, I never set out to convert anyone in the Klan. I just set out to get an answer to my question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? I simply gave them a chance to get to know me and treated them the way I want to be treated. They come to their own conclusion that this ideology is no longer for them. Now, obviously, that's a remarkable and a remarkably brave choice that shows the power of non-complementary behaviour, the power of our non-complementary gospel. Repay evil with blessing. On a more kind of everyday sort of scale, I think this non-complementary approach, this deliberate flipping of the script, is one we want to cultivate in the way that we talk about and to the culture around us and the people in it. For example, in response to people's criticisms and accusations when it comes to the church, when people say, 
Christianity causes war and division, or Christians are homophobic or misogynists, or the church is full of hypocrites, the instinctive response for those of us who are churchgoers might be to get defensive, to make excuses, to show them the other side of the story. Uh, Instead, non-complimentary, can we not agree? Can we not concede that those accusations have way too often been true and that we're also devastated and angered by that? And from there explain why it's especially heinous that followers of Jesus would ever treat anyone as not valuable or explain that Jesus was actually the original and most fierce critic of religious hypocrisy. It's disarming, and it also has the advantage of being, you know, honest. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Jesus is a script flipper, and we're called to be as well. We've talked about thirst and how to reach out to a parched world with a non-complementary gospel. Thirdly, I want to say something about what it looks like, what the effect is when living water is poured out on a parched world, when the church lives up to what the church is meant to be. There are a lot of reasons to doubt the narrative that Christianity is good for the world and it's good for individuals, and plenty of people do doubt that. A 2017 poll by Ipsos across 23 countries found that 49% of adults overall agreed with the statement Religion does more harm than good in the world, 49%. In Australia, significantly higher, 63% of people agreed that essentially we'd be better off without religion, without religious people. And yet, to give you just one other stat, the sociologist Hugh McKay in his book about community and belonging cites um, a figure that 88% of non-churchgoers in Australia like the idea of having a church in their neighbourhood. 88%. There are a lot of different things going on there. But the religion poisons everything narrative, to borrow a phrase from the late Christopher Hitchens, is an influential one. Um, My colleagues and I at CPX made a whole documentary and wrote a book about it called For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And it looks at 2,000 years of crusades and inquisitions and witch hunts and exploitation and coercion in the name of Christ but also you know, the founding of hospitals and leper colonies, the invention of universal education, the development of human rights and democracy, the abolition of slavery, and so on. I don't have time here to share with you very much about our findings in all that, but in the course of doing research on both the good and the absolutely terrible of Christian history for that project, what I found was that the gospel really has profoundly changed and profoundly made our world. Uh, In actual fact, though, I had never thought about it before uh, actually doing this research. If the Christian gospel is true, if the church really is a community of imperfect people brought gradually and painfully but actually back into alignment with the God who made them and his purposes for them, then you would expect it to change things in the places where it takes root for the better and observably, and not only for that community of the realigned, but for everyone. If God really did take on flesh to visit his creatures, to take on our frailties and our failings, to die, 
and break through death to inaugurate a new kind of humanity and begin reordering his fractured world according to that new life, I think it would actually look like what we see, kind of flickering and wobbly, but distinct in Christian history. It would look like the development of human rights and equality before the law and science and democracy. We would see that this new life, where it's authentically active, is good for individuals and good for society. To put this another way, God's purposes are not thwarted by our failures as individuals or as the church. To return to Isaiah 55, verse 10, that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Hundreds of years later, Jesus will declare that whoever drinks the water he gives will never thirst, that the living water he gives will become in those who accept the free gift of it a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me conclude here by sharing a story with you about love of neighbour, about how at the end of the day, if we're going to build porches between the church Uh, and a thirsty world where people can be invited to drink lemonade, to find satisfaction for their thirst, we need to make sure that we are showing and not just telling of the grace of our God. Uh, We live in a time when Christian compassion um, can often look to people um, like callousness when it comes to issues like abortion or euthanasia, often issues of sexuality and gender. We can state the truth as we see it, in words that speak love into very charged conversations. But alongside that, we can and must simply keep on serving, keep on loving. I kind of hear Finding Nemo in my head if you've seen that one. Just keep swimming, just keep serving. We can't control how people will read our actions, but we can keep serving in whatever ways are open to us, regardless because of who it is we're serving, whose world all of this is. And though people's response to Christian service and to the Christian message might be very different things, um, I want to tell you this brief story to illustrate how organically those strands are connected. Uh, It's a story about the Australian philosopher and writer Raymond Gator, Um, an experience that he had as a teenager. He's not a Christian, but this is kind of an experience he had that he can't quite get past when he wants to dismiss Christianity. He writes that when he was 17, he worked as a ward assistant in a psychiatric hospital in Victoria. And some of the patients had been there for more than 30 years. They were judged incurable. They were often treated quite brutally. But there was a group of psychiatrists working there who insisted on the dignity of these patients and worked hard to improve their conditions. And Gator admired these doctors, but one day, he writes, this nun came to the ward to visit with the patients. He writes that when she talked to them, everything in her demeanor towards them, the way she spoke to them, her facial expressions, the inflections of her body, contrasted with and showed up the behavior of those noble psychiatrists. She showed that they were, despite their best efforts, condescending as I too had been. She thereby revealed that even such patients were, as the psychiatrist and I had sincerely and generously professed, the equals of those who wanted to help them. 
But she also revealed that in our hearts we did not believe this. Looking back, Gator tries to figure out what role the nun's faith played in the way that she treated the patients. He says, I do not know how important it was that she was a nun. One is inclined, of course, to say that her behaviour was a function of the depth of her religious beliefs. Perhaps it was, but typically beliefs explain behaviour independently of their truth or falsity. A person's false beliefs explain their behaviour as effectively as their true ones. Seeing her, however, I felt irresistibly that her behaviour was directly shaped by the reality which it revealed. In the nun's case, her behaviour was striking not for the virtues it expressed or even for the good it achieved, but for its power to reveal the full humanity of those whose affliction had made their humanity invisible. Love is the name we give to such behaviour. Gator finds that though he doesn't share the nun's convictions about reality, he has trouble in this case separating those convictions from the reality. The nun's treatment of these very ill people seemed to correspond with something that was really there, something that he couldn't see but she could or that he could only see when she brought it into focus. Love and truth, not separate, not separable. People recognise real love when they see it up close and it has a pull to it, a pull to the truth that it springs from. In the words of the Apostle Peter, we are to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we come to you thirsty and aware of what a parched world we live in. Aware, too, that you are the one who is offering free of charge living water to quench our thirst, to bring life to us all. Thank you for giving your son to die for us, that this water might indeed be free for all. Empower us to reach out to a thirsty world with words of life and acts of service that all may know your grace and glory. Amen.